and so we looked at that last week, and so if you're just joining us this week, there was a lot of foundation that we uh, laid. That sermon is up on the website. Uh, you can come talk to me, but basically, um, I want to read, uh, the, uh, make a, a, qu- a quick clarification, if I may, uh, regarding uh, what we talked about last week, and it comes from uh, 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12, where Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And we made this fairly clear last week, but I just want to reiterate it uh, for the sake of clarity. When, when Paul's saying here that women need to remain quiet, he, I think it goes without saying, although maybe not, that doesn't mean that women can't talk in the household of God in church at all. I mean, obviously, you've all probably, you know, women here have been talking to one another. There's been women up here singing, and uh, there'll be later women praying. And so when he's talking about women remaining quiet, he's specifically, uh, you know, referencing the phrase that I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. And so we looked at that, what that was last week. And again, for clarity's sake, to reiterate it, that means teaching with authority. And so there's a lot of debate about what that can or can't be, but where we've decided and where we've kind of landed as a church at the moment is that we think teaching with authority, on the one hand, is a reference to uh, the authority that church leaders have to uh, bring in or remove people whose teaching and whose doctrine is wrong. That's teaching with authority. There's lots of teaching that can go on in the church But who gets to say what's right or what's wrong? Who, in a sense, has that God-given authority? It certainly not doesn't reside within men themselves, but given by God uh, to them. And Paul says here he reserves that position for the elders. And so uh, that you can see that, and we'll probably see it a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 11. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians 14, a similar type thing. Men and women are both prophesying in the church. And then uh, Paul says that, that he restricts women from evaluating that prophecy because the authoritative role there uh, God has assigned for men. So we looked at that last week, and so that's what we think the New Testament is talking about when it refers to teaching with authority. Obviously, it doesn't mean that women don't speak or even teach, as we'll see a little bit later, in God's household, in God's church. I mean, even here, just by way of uh, you know, reference in 1 Corinthians 11, every man who prays or prophesies with his head cover dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So, like, let's just be controversial. We're already in it, so here we are. Now let's talk about head coverings. But regardless of the head covering issue here, the assumption is that men would pray and prophesy in God's household in the church, and that women would pray and prophesy in God's household in the church. And so, obviously, this doesn't mean that women don't participate uh, in uh, the the life and speaking, communication, the building up of the church. In fact, it's quite the opposite, and that's what the point of this morning's sermon is supposed to be about, is that although God has designed different roles for men and women to play inside the church, we want to highlight specifically this morning the uh, the essential contribution that women make in the church. That's what this whole sermon this morning is supposed to be about. So after that brief clarification, let me just use another C here. Women's role kind of commemorated. Commemorating, thinking back to the various ways that women have been involved in the church is what we want to do this morning and then make a couple of correlations and connections at the end for us. So let me start, always a good place to start in the beginning with Genesis here. 
And what I want you to see in Genesis chapter 1 is that God gave a mandate, theologians call it the creation mandate or the cultural mandate, for men and women, both made in his image, men and women equal in value and dignity, distinct in roles, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And so both male and female are equally created in the image of God. And so what does that mean? God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing on the earth. And so the the command of God to rule, subdue, and multiply goes to men and women equally But even from, if you think about the multiply uh, word there, there's different functions and roles that men and women do in the multiplication of the human race. Okay, we'll leave it there. (laughs) Okay, you with me? You see what I'm talking about? There's different roles there. Okay, and they're not interchangeable. Okay, and so equal in essence, distinct in function, but both men and women called to, uh, I read one theologian this week, what happened when God created man and woman and placed them in the garden, they were supposed to then Edenize the rest of the world, which I think is a great verb, Edenize. They were to make together, the man and the woman were to harmoniously work together to rule, subdue, and fill the earth and make the rest of the earth like the Garden of Eden. That make sense? And so men and women called equally co-labor to do that together. Now, as we know, sin entered in the world, fractured and broke all kinds of stuff, and the Edenization process of the world, you know, got turned all upside down. Although God had a plan that he was going to redeem and restore, (coughs) not just get us back to the garden, but God initiated a plan after the fall of mankind to bring us, in a sense, beyond Eden. The new heavens and new earth, the city of the new heavenly city, That's what the world was supposed to be. So God initiated his plan of redemption and restoration that we are still in right now and currently moving toward. And so you might expect, and it is true, that if there's a parallel, that if God summoned men and women equally, although distinct in function, to participate in the creation mandate, they're also going to be called equally, both essential, in order for the restoration process for that to begin, or for that to happen. And so just as men and women were involved in the mission to Edenize, so men and women now are essentially involved in the, 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 what we would call, and theologians call, the Great Commission, the renewal of this. Adam and Eve were to fill the earth with image bearers, but they fell into sin. And now Jesus has come as the second Adam, and through him, we're followers of him, he calls us to fill the earth with image bearers through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. The image of God is broken through sin, but it's restored through the preaching and the person of Jesus Christ, and men and women are called both together to participate in this mission of getting image bearers to fill the earth. You with me? That makes sense? Nod your head. Yeah? So far? Okay. We'll keep working. When most people, if, you're, if you've been around church a while, you've heard the phrase Great Commission. Most people think Great Commission, that's Matthew 28, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go make disciples. Disciples, that's image bearers. Go make image bearers of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, behold, I am with you till the end of the age. That's what people normally think of the Great Commission. Well, 
that's not the only place after Jesus rose from the dead that he kind of articulated that mission. Matthew's the most famous, but there is a great commission in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's gathered his apostles and disciples together, and he says to them this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus has risen from the dead as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's going to cause this, it's in a sense, the re-Edenization, now I'm really getting deep with that word, of the whole world, and it's going to happen through the witnesses that he calls to himself, and he says, now go throughout all of the world and declare to them that I am the king and my kingdom is coming. Renewal of all things, that's what he's talking about. And so the Great Commission exists here in Acts chapter 1. Now, when Acts chapter 2 comes onto the scene, actually, I don't even have the verse. If you, go to Acts with me if you have your Bible. Go to Acts chapter, actually, Acts chapter 1. It's interesting how this gets worked out. And Acts 1 verse 12 says, When they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. <coughs> Carolyn? I left my water there. So sorry. You can bring it to me, please. They they left the room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew, Matthew, James. He goes through all these apostles and disciples. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So who is engaged in this new mission of declaring the kingship of Jesus and the re-Edenization of the whole world. Who's there? Well, we, you know, you know, we said the apostles, the disciples are there, yes. But there's a bunch of women there as well. And he reports a couple verses later that the total number of people there is about 120. And now when the Holy Spirit falls, Acts 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues of fire appeared on, them, on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. When God's missional mandate to bear witness to His creation finally happens, it doesn't happen just on the men. It's the men and the women who receive tongues of fire on their head and they start to proclaim the good news of Jesus to everybody. That's how it started. And so we need to see that the role of the women in the... This is not just about, okay, well, what happens when we come to church? That's like as if church were an end in and of itself. This church exists, Trinity, just so you know, for the sake of Jesus Christ and His mission. And if we lose that mission, then literally, you know, 12 years ago, Trinity Church was not here, and the kingdom of God was just fine. And we could, quote-unquote, close up shop, you know, next week, and Jesus' kingdom will still go. It is our privilege to be a part of this mission. That's what we exist for, and we are not going to do that effectively unless we all, men and women, not competing, but co-laboring together for the advance of this gospel. And what I want to do, as I've said, is highlight them this morning. If 1 Timothy 2 seems to restrict the role of women, 
which it does. There's one prohibition there, okay? We don't, we have a principle of how we understand Scripture at this church that we interpret Scripture in light of all the other Scriptures. You don't want to pigeonhole and see, well, that's the only thing the New Testament says about women is it restricts them. What I want to see this morning is this huge, broad, essential participation and contribution that women make to the advance of the gospel in the New Testament. And so um, I've got some of these verses. I got like my my brain. <laughs> That's it's too dramatic, but <laughs> went crazy with all of the references that are there. And I know we got a limited amount of time here, but I was telling. I was telling Trinity 101 this morning, you know, you know when you, you get a new car, or new or used, whatever, but it's new to you, and you start driving that car, and you notice then, as you're driving through town, you start seeing that car. I didn't know so many people had this car. I thought I was unique. I thought I was rare. No, no, like, especially me, I drive a Honda Accord. <laughs> Literally, everyone has a gray Honda Accord. Anyway, you start noticing the role and the contribution of women, and then the next thing you know, you start seeing it literally on like almost every page in the New Testament. But just kind of in little ways. It's almost like there in Acts chapter 1, it's like, oh yeah, the apostles are waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall, but Luke includes, oh, and the women were there too. Oh, and all the women had uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then in that passage, which I didn't even finish it, if you go later in Peter's sermon, he quotes Joel 2, which Joel 2 prophesies that when the kingdom of God comes, that your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. And so it's very prominent. So, again, if you have your Bible or however you want to do it, some will be on the screen, some won't, but we'll just kind of see which ones I get to. But go to Luke chapter 8. Luke 8, kind of start with the ministry of Jesus first. Soon afterward, he went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Here's Jesus doing what Jesus does, bringing the kingdom of God in. And the twelve were with him. The twelve apostles, the men, yep. And also some women whom he had healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. You ever wonder... How did Jesus end the disciples? I thought they like left their jobs. How were they? these were carpenters, fishermen, zealots? Like, how did they actually like live? Prominent, wealthy, influential women provided for the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus doesn't happen in that first century. Sorry, I think I just hit a button there. Does not happen apart from the support of those women. Again, just there. I didn't know when I was going to do this one, but I guess I'll do it now. I mean, let's just even take a st- one step back previous. In a sense, I was going to maybe save the best to last, but I'll, I'll put it here. I'll put it second, which is where it never goes. Maybe I'll pr- highlight it for you. Secondly, Jesus was born of a woman. Amen? Galatians 4. When God said, okay, I need to bring the work of salvation to humankind, my first move, so to speak, is to not involve a man at all. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. And literally, you want to talk about an essential role? It is absolutely something that a man could not biologically do. 
God brought salvation essentially through a woman. And essentially through a man. Jesus was a man. This isn't like, okay, well, we've been talking too much about men, so now let's talk about how much women are better. No, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about co-laboring, harmonious, working together. God created both genders uh, for His glory to accomplish His purposes in the world. And so God, you know, when you look at even the ministry of Jesus, of course, we see that these women were playing an essential, contributing role in order for Jesus and His apostles to do the things that they were doing. And, of course, Jesus was born of a woman, essentially, non-interchangeably. How about the woman at the well? Because it's not just that the, uh, the women in, in Luke 8 here were uh, supporting Jesus' ministry in a, in a logistical, probably administrative type way and, and, and provisional type way. But the woman at the well, remember, she was uh, kind of, you know, basically equivalent of a prostitute. Uh, not to speak too harshly, she had had five husbands, and the guy she was currently with, she wasn't married to. And Jesus meets with that woman at the well. He reveals that he is the Son of Man, the King of Kings to her, and she believes on him. And then what does she do? She goes to the Samaritan village and is the, the first evangelist to the Samaritans, and it says many people in that city believe because of the testimony of that woman. That woman. That's, a, that's evangelism. That, that woman at the well has led more people to Jesus than I have for sure. Okay? So the role of women, you know, as we see even in Jesus' ministry, before even the church kind of officially launches, and even at the beginning of their Pentecost, we see this essential, crucial role of women in the New Testament. Now, in 1 Timothy 2, let's just look at some of the aspects, maybe try to, you know, put some categories up here. And the first one I'm going to talk about is teaching. 1 Timothy 2 says that Paul doesn't want a woman to teach with authority. Well, there's all kinds of other teachings that happen in the household of God besides that authoritative teaching to, to bind and loose and evaluate people's sound doctrine. You say, well, what do you mean, Mike? Well, let me give you a couple examples of how women you know, are involved in teaching. We've seen evangelism for sure, prophesying, Acts 2, the woman at the well, but even teaching. Titus 2, there's a older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine. They're to teach what is good and train young women to love their husbands, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Note again, the point of this teaching is so that the word of God may not be reviled, so that the mission of Jesus and the announcement of his kingdom looks right and appropriate to the communities around them. And so the older women are to teach and to mentor. There's content and intellectual stuff that's happening, theology that's happening, along with the practical side of that is happening as well. And so we believe that the Holy Spirit gifts women, certain women, to be able to teach and mentor, and that certainly happens in the church from older women to younger women. But it's not exclusive to older women and younger women. Here's an example with very close co-laborers with Paul, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is the wife. Aquila is the husband. They were tent makers like Paul. That's actually how they met, making tents, and they formed this beautiful partnership and relationship in the gospel. And Priscilla and Aquila often ministered and labored with Paul. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. 
competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew about the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is one of the most diplomatic uh, verses in the Bible. This is, that is not how I would have reported the situation. So get it now. You've got Apollos. Other places in the Scripture says he's a lawyer. This dude's sharp. He's like a young, uprising, theological star, to be weird about it. And he's teaching and preaching, and the writer of Acts says, and he was doing it accurately. But one day, <laughs> I could just, maybe this resonates a little bit more with me, one day Priscilla and Aquila show up at his synagogue, and they're there, and they're politely sitting and listening, and then you start to see Aquila nod over. And then Aquila leans back. I don't think that was totally accurate. Me neither. Do you think we should tell him? Yeah. So after the service is over, I mean, again, he's vehement. I mean, he's, he's excited. I mean, he's, you know, he's Chris Lindsay. You know, this guy's passionate. He's fired up. And he's eloquent. He's smart. And this is just Priscilla and Aquila, the tent makers. But they come and say, hey, Apollos, come here. I need to explain some things to you because you don't understand it accurately. You need to learn from me. And virtually every commentator and scholar of the New Testament that I've read, because Priscilla's name is mentioned first every single time they appear in the New Testament, that was a place of prominence. Most likely Priscilla's understanding and theological articulation was maybe more gifted than her husband Aquila. And so Priscilla as a woman, is teaching Apollos, this great charismatic preacher. And so is there a place for women in the church to learn from men? Are you kidding me? Absolutely. Acts, 24, Acts 18, 24 to 48. And then look what happens with Apollos then. And when he wished to cross through Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who grace who had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. After a little theological training with Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos was even more bold and more powerful and more effective in defending the faith of Jesus Christ in those Gentile lands. It was amazing. There's another place where the New Testament talks. And again, you, you just have to pay close attention when you're reading and thinking about it. You see where, an, another context where women are involved in speaking in a way that men in the church learn. <laughs> By the way, one word that keeps coming to my mind about this whole sermon, I just wonder to myself, is this whole sermon going to be mansplaining? <laughs> well, apparently not. No one thought so. Good. 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 33. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let them first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, 
so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I didn't put on there, I should have. Uh, verse 34 says that, that Paul wants the women to remain silent in churches, and he, he, he gives that statement again. That statement is about the evaluation process. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. But, Paul says in chapter 11, women and men can prophesy, and the end result when we get to chapter 14 of both men and women prophesying in an orderly fashion in the church is that everybody learns. And so when a a woman who is gifted with prophecy, now prophecy is kind of a broad category of you know, it's definitely got understanding of the scriptures in there. It's definitely got uh, uh, undertones of the work of the Holy Spirit and revealing things. It could even mean revealing things about the, you know, the temporal future. But it's kind of a broad category. We, make, we might call it like a testimony or testifying or sharing or something like that. It's a broad category. That's what prophesying is. But Paul assumes that that will be happening in an orderly fashion in the church and that men and women are doing it as an essential part of building up, and that men and women will learn from the men and women who are prophesying. Does that make sense? So we're, what, what I'm doing here is building a category. Paul does restrict authoritative teaching, but there's all kinds of other teaching. Prophesying, uh, there is kind of like the, the formal mentorship and discipleship that's happening between men and women, as well as women to women, the older teaching the younger. All of that demonstrates the essential nature and contribution of women in the assembly, and if it's not happening, the church isn't being built up in ways that it ought to. Not only is there a whole category of teaching that women can be involved with, but also church planting. In Acts chapter 16, Paul finds himself in the city of Philippi, and one who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged us to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. We don't have time to get into the whole thing here. That is the initial church plant of the city of Philippi, which as you read your New Testament, the letter of Philippians, that was done and accomplished through Lydia. Lydia and some of her friends, female friends, were meeting down by the river. They were devout God-fears, Jewish, and you needed ten men, according to Jewish law, in order to have a full synagogue. And so since they didn't have that, they were just meeting themselves to pray and ask God to work mightily among them. And God sent them the Apostle Paul and through, that, the, through their prayer and then through the bringing of Paul, you see the working together of men and women that Lydia's heart is open. She's born again. She becomes a Christian. Her household becomes Christians, which in that day, Lydia would have a seller of purple. She would have been an influential uh, business owner, probably a wealthy business owner. A household means servants and, and uh, people from the community that, that helped her in that. Lots of people that she knew became Christians. And then as you read Acts 16, other folks became Christians, and Lydia's house became the place where the church at Philippi met. And so as we think about the advance of the gospel around the world, what does God need to do? He needs to raise up men and women who are like Lydia, who are praying and asking God to do a mighty work, 
opening up their hearts and then opening up their homes to receive any and all who would come for the sake of Jesus. Women's role and contribution to church planning is absolutely essential. You know, I could share multiple stories about how the Lord has used the women in this church when we planted this church 12 years ago. It was it was a joint. It wasn't again. It wasn't just women. It was men and women working together, serving, sharing, reaching out to their network, communicating, being evangelistic. All of that happened 12 years ago. Still happening today, and the Lord is using that effort together of men and women in order to see a church planted. And the same thing will be happening. So if you're thinking there again, you're maybe you're a younger woman. It's like, what does God want to do with my life? Certainly one of the greatest things he could do, one of the greatest things that you could be involved with is to go and be involved in a new work, a new church plant, and say, I'm going to give my life to see a new work of the gospel in this area, wherever that might be. And God is using men and women crucially in that process. I use Lydia here as an example because most people probably think she was single. Again, we don't know exactly, we don't know all these people's biographies, their CVs or whatever. Uh, but most think that Lydia was single business. She was, you know, in the quote-unquote workforce. But it's not the, not the only kind of woman, certainly, that God uses. This is what I would call missional moms. This is Second Timothy. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers. Paul's talking to Timothy here. I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Timothy, we're quite confident either his father was not on the scene or his father was an outsider who didn't believe. So his household was split. His mother was a believer and his father either wasn't a believer and present or wasn't a believer and wasn't there. And obviously Timothy was a, a man mightily used of God. First Timothy written to him. He had an influential and important role in Ephesus. He was someone who suffered for the sake of Christ. He's worthy of honor. This young man, Timothy, <coughs> became Paul's son in the faith. Where did Timothy's faith come from? It came from a faithful grandmother who never stopped praying for her grandson. And a mother who faithfully prayed and encouraged. They had genuine faith, and that genuine faith just got passed down. And so Lois and Eunice were used by God, certainly in their households, but also in passing on the faith to Timothy, who then God gifted, you know, in, in a unique way. Not all of our kids, obviously, are going to be gifted like that, but their genuine faith got passed to Timothy, and in God's sovereignty and providence, God gifted Timothy with amazing gifts, and that genuine faith exploded into fruitfulness because of missional moms. You know, Spurgeon said, you know, that one of the, the devil's greatest fears is the praying mom. <laughs> That's good preaching. As long as there's a faithful mother, and I would say father as well, but highlighting this morning, faithful moms praying and seeking to pass on genuine faith, then this is an effective way that the gospel is advanced in our neighborhoods and to the nations. I mean, Lois and Eunice, that grandmother and mother, had no idea 
as they were living out their genuine faith day in and day out with all the ups and downs and turmoils that a divided household would have, they had no idea that that genuine faith would be given to Timothy and that God would use that and then take Timothy and now Timothy is spoken about through all of Christian history for all of time. They had no idea. They were faithful, prayerful, and genuine. And God used them to advance the mission in their community, yes, and then also through those whom they discipled, their son, Timothy. So you think about categories of how God can use us in in our homes, categories of how God can use us outside of our homes, categories of how uh, God uses us uh, with evangelism, categories of how God uses women in teaching. This, is, this next one's not on the screen, but go to Romans chapter 16. We'll finish up here in Romans 16 on this point, just kind of going through this, this survey of this commemoration of women in the New Testament. Romans 16 is an interesting chapter in the Bible. It's kind of unique in the sense that it's a huge, long list of greetings that Paul gives to the church at Rome. And it gives you kind of a window, kind of an insight into how church in the first century worked. So Romans 16 and verse 1, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancri, that you may welcome her in the Lord in the way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. (coughs) Phoebe it says, was a servant. I understand that to mean not just a general comment, oh, she's a servant of the Lord, but based on a few of the grammatical things there in the Greek, that Paul is indicating that Phoebe, is a, has, she has a role in the church. She is a deaconess. It's the word for deaconess. She was a, a formally identified servant a deacon in the church. And when we get to 1 Timothy 3, that's how I understand 1 Timothy 3 as well. There's some, there's some debate about, is he talking about the deacon's wives or what? But I think it's best take, taken in 1 Timothy 3 that, the, that there are wives, or excuse me, that there are women who are deacons and there's qualifications for them. And so in the church, in God's household, God has reserved the authority for the elders about doctrine and and matters of behavior, but he's also given another office in the church, the office of deacon, which is servant leaders who lead the church in demonstrating the gospel. If you think about the gifts of the Spirit that God has given the church, you can basically put it in two categories, kind of speaking gifts and serving gifts. That's 1 Peter chapter 4. If you speak, you do it in the strength God supplies. If you serve, you do it in the strength God supplies. And, of course, there's overlap and things like that. But corresponding more to the speaking authoritative roles is the office of the elder. Corresponding more to the service role is the, the, the office and the ministry of the deacons. And the New Testament, in my view, in our view, opens up that office to women. And we see it here with Phoebe. And it fits with the diaconate role. She was a helper. She was a a, a supporter. She was a patron. Again, another wealthy, influential woman. I don't know where all these women were getting all this wealth in the New Testament, but she was a patron of many and of Paul. She was a primary supporter of the ministry, financially and logistically and administratively. And Paul says, welcome her. Most scholars think that Phoebe was the one who carried Romans 
from Paul to the church. I mean, you think about that responsibility. It's like, you know, you ever give something to your kids and you're just like praying, please don't lose it. <laughs> please don't lose it. Please don't lose it. Don't drop it in the water. Just don't. I mean, she's carrying Romans. You know, it's incredible responsibility that he's given to her. And she's a deaconess. If you go down through later, Paul lists about eight, I think it's eight or nine other women Four of them specifically, well, let's just read them. I mean, these women's names ought to be read. Verse 3, greet Prissa and Aquila. There they are again, Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. I mean, think about that. These women, the, the role and the function that they have includes life-threatening circumstances. I mean, the bravery that's needed for the advance of the mission is not all located in the men. How about in Acts 8 and 9, when Saul, before he becomes Paul, is a terror to the church? He's literally terrorizing the church. It says that Paul, excuse me, Saul threw men and women in prison. There are women who have suffered physically in their bodies for the sake of Christ. Priscilla being one of them. Greet the church in their house. <coughs> Verse 6, greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known among the apostles. Junia is definitely a female. Some people think that that's a man. That is not a man. That is a woman. They are well known among the apostles. They have a great reputation they are in prison for the sake of Christ. These women need to be honored in that way. Um, Trophena in verse 12 and Trophosa greet Persis who worked hard in the Lord. There's three more women. The word that's worked hard there in the Lord is the same word that Paul uses for his ministry in other places in 1 Thessalonians when he worked hard for the sake of the gospel. So Paul, in a sense, is equating the hard work that goes into advancing the gospel, Trophina and Trophosa, you know, these, these, word, these names are a little bit of a mouthful, and I'm missing one there, um, Trophina, Trophosa, and Persis, thank you. Verse 15, there's Julia. So there's just all of these women listed, nine of them here in Romans chapter 16, that are risking their necks for the gospel, that are patrons of the gospel, that are deacons in the church, and that are working hard and laboring for the advance of the mission. And the mission doesn't go forward if the men and the women are not together laboring, working hard for the sake of Christ. Now to finish, women's role, continuation, and I just put that as another C, the continuing role of women in our church here. So, as I said a few weeks ago, when we go through these letters in the New Testament, we're not going through them and to say, oh, look, here's what the Bible says. And, of course, we've been doing it perfectly all the time. <laughs> when we go through these letters, at least for me, it's like, oh, man, <laughs> we've got to grow. We looked at the prayer, the prayer thing. Like, the, the church should be known as a house of prayer. 
And so we're like, man, we got to grow. we got to start trying to implement things and do things that are going to communicate and demonstrate that we actually take 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4 seriously, that this church should be about prayer. So let's try this and let's do this. we got to grow. When we look at the New Testament and all of the variety and essential and crucial roles that women played, my response to that is, praise God for that. Praise God for the sisters in our church who are already doing that and experiencing that. Praise God for an openness to it. And praise God we get to grow. (laughs) Amen? In trying to equip and serve and empower and celebrate and commemorate how our sisters in Christ are crucially and essentially partnering together with us as men to carry out the mission of Jesus. If we don't do it together, we are not going to be as faithful and as fruitful as Jesus wants us to be. It's just that simple. And so we just want to, we want to grow in this. We want to be more careful. And again, I don't, I'm not going to like make, you know, as Rocky said, I'm not going to make a promise that we can't cash. I'm just letting you know that we've been thinking about some of this stuff for, for a while, and we're continuing to, and this coming across these passages and scriptures are propelling us to think more carefully about it. That being said, there are opportunities to jump in. You know, you think about those teaching and prophesying things that we've talked about. That, there is a tremendous opportunity in gospel communities to get together around the Word of God and to share and to teach and learn from one another. You can learn from sisters in Christ in those contexts. And you know, as far as the gospel community goes and who's leading that gospel community, the leadership of the gospel communities is open to men and women. The diaconate at our church is open to men and women. And so we want to encourage and, uh, and, and promote those opportunities that are there. Opportunities to pray, opportunities to sing, opportunities to teach through song. Those things are all open. As we've said before, basically, whatever a non-ordained man can do, is what a woman is free to do in this church. It's not the question anymore of, it shouldn't be, of what can't a woman do, but what are the ways that we can cause and help women to flourish in their roles and in their gifts at this church? That being said, I also want to just say a word of thanks and appreciation. And it's like this is super risky because you're just going to forget. You know, I know I'm going to forget, and I don't write all this stuff down. But in terms of you know, what is happening on a week-in and week-out basis, just thank you to all the sisters for the service and teaching and praying and serving and giving and hosting and feeding and mentoring and child-rearing and, did I say praying? It's worth saying again, praying, singing, organizing, yeah, reminding... I think that's like a spiritual gift of my wife, of a reminder of all of those things that you sisters in Christ are doing on a week-in and week-out basis to make this church what it is. And I genuinely say that from the bottom of my heart. It's not about me, but just thank you for what you are doing and have been doing, and we want to see God use you even more to be more evangelistic, more prayerful, more helpful, uh, more faithful in what we're doing. So I've asked uh, two women to come and pray for us and for our season of prayer. So if jo- is Joanne Larowin? Yes, she is. And Tasha. So come on up, ladies. And Joanne, we'll let Tasha go first. You can welcome them up here, yeah.